you're listening to Mysteries Beyond. What mysteries lie beyond the reach of our senses? And who are you in this vast multiverse? Hello, and welcome to Mysteries Beyond. I'm your host, Laura Lavender. Alright guys, so before we begin, I would like to give you guys a fair warning. This episode is going to be heavy, and it may seem dark, darker than usual, because we are going to be exploring the topic of death again. I do have quite a bit to say on the subject, but if it makes you uncomfortable, then you may want to skip this episode. I do like to treat these topics with as much respect as I can, and also I like to approach it with a sense of love. And at the same time, I'd like for all of us to keep an open mind. Alright, well, I feel like I did my part. I gave you guys fair warning. So... Let's begin. So after having been looking into and researching the topic of souls of purgatory, it led me to explore this topic. And that is the topic of funerary practices across the world and through time. So let's start out with what we currently do here in the U.S., One of the very first things that is done to the body soon after someone has passed is an autopsy. What's an autopsy? Well, it's a post-mortem examination, and it is done to figure out the cause of death. And it consists of the pathologist making a Y-shaped incision from your chest to your abdomen. Now, Because the body automatically, almost immediately, begins to decay after death, and in order to ensure the greatest and most effective diagnosis, it is imperative that all organs, including the heart, the lungs, the liver, the intestines, your stomach, all of that, including your brain, are removed as quickly as possible. And if you're already thinking, ugh, I don't want that done to me, well, you may not have a choice. It's going to depend on your death. Like many matters, the laws differ from state to state. But, for the most part, an autopsy will be required if your death is unexpected, or if you had a suspicious death, such as a suicide or a murder or if your death was a result of any injury, and also if you're under 18. One of the many interesting things about autopsies is that even if you have different religious beliefs, like the Jewish, for example, who believe that the body is sacred and should be left intact. And from my understanding, people of the Jewish faith believe that after a person dies, a part of their soul 
remains with the body, and it slowly leaves the body as it decomposes. And the body is to remain in its most natural state, because there will come a time when all souls will descend again into their own bodies, and all of mankind will live together and in harmony. But even if you have those spiritual beliefs, it doesn't supersede the law surrounding the autopsies. So, even if you are Jewish, but suddenly die unexpectedly, an autopsy will be performed. While researching this topic, I've learned quite a few things. One is that when it comes to the whole morgue and funerary process, not too many things are known and or are questioned. And I get it, I understand, because usually when anyone has to deal with, you know, the morgue or the funerary process, one, we're probably not going to be in the right state of mind to be looking out for things or questioning certain practices, and two, the topic of death makes many people uncomfortable, and many of us probably try to speed past it. But I have learned that whenever an autopsy is performed, all of your organs have to be removed, right? But do you guys know what they do with those organs? Well, not much. They just put them in a plastic red bag and stuff them in your chest cavity and they sew you back up. But I have learned that morgue professionals are trained to sew you back up and make it seem like your organs were never taken out. So that's a lot of trust that we're placing in them. People could be harvesting your loved one's organs on the black market and you'd never know it. I'm not saying that that is what is happening all the time. <laughs> I'm just saying it's something to think about. Well, alright. So after the whole autopsy comes the embalming process. So the embalming process is typically done in funeral homes. And what it consists of is washing and cleansing the body first. And also removing all the fluids from the body. So basically, all of your blood is going to be drained out. And then they inject the embalming fluid into your arteries. And this is done as an attempt to help preserve the body. It's not meant to help preserve the body for months or years, but rather just for a few days to get the whole family through the viewing part of the funeral process. And after that, they dress the body and they put on all of the cosmetics. What I have learned about the whole embalming process is that when they drain your blood, some of the times it just goes down the drain, which of course in turn then ends up in her water supply. But that's not all. That liquid that they inject into your body after you're dead is a solution that is composed of formaldehyde. That chemical alone is extremely toxic. It's a carcinogen. It's a colorless liquid with a potent odor. 
It causes liver damage, respiratory distress, nervous system damage, and, well, of course, cancer. I mean, the employees there have to wear layers of protective gear just to even touch and or work on the body. That's why they say it's more dangerous to touch an embalmed body than it is a natural dead body. And so, when we are placed six feet under, those chemicals can eventually have an effect on the soil after a while. From what I've learned, the zoning laws in the U.S. are pretty lenient. You can bury anyone pretty much anywhere, really. For example, I live in Nevada, so when I looked up the statue, it stated that you do need a permit, but burial on private property is possible. And learning about the whole process was eye-opening because I realized that, at least here in the U.S., we're sort of shielded from death. Nobody wants to talk about it, and when we are forced to deal with it, we glue the eyes of our deceased loved one shut to make it seem like they're sleeping. We put makeup on their bodies to make it seem and make it look more lifelike. Sometimes they'll place the left hand on top to show the wedding ring. And to some other cultures, that might seem like the weirdest, most strangest thing to do. But let's take it back to the Victorian era, because there are a couple of practices that were once done that today might seem extremely strange. And so the Victorian era took place between the years of 1837 and 1901. And this was in Europe, in London. During this era, the mortality rate was extremely high. People were dying left and right. And this was due to tuberculosis, cholera, scarlet fever. And it also didn't help that they had poor sanitation. I believe it was stated that the average male lived to be about 40 years old, while the average female lived to be about 42. And sadly, the mortality rate for children was 50%, which meant that one out of every two children didn't make it past the age of five. So it's not surprising to learn that afterwards, society became sort of obsessed with death. And that's what gave rise to some of these interesting practices. People began to cover their mirrors, and family portraits and pictures, they were taken down. And this was done because they believed that the souls would get lost and or trapped and wouldn't be able to cross over. Another reason they would cover their mirrors was because they believed that they should abstain from vanity. You know, it's not a time to worry about what you look like. It's a time to mourn your loved ones who have passed. The whole covering of the mirrors may have originated from older Jewish traditions, but nonetheless, they were still practiced in the Victorian era. The stopping of the clocks was something else that was practiced. One reason this was done was that so mourners could stay and mourn 
for as long as they'd liked, without having to worry about how much time had gone by. But it was also done because they believed that the soul of the newly deceased person would be able to move on to the next life without having to worry about time. And if the clock was allowed to continue to move, they believed it would invite the spirit of the deceased person to remain in the home and haunt it endlessly. But perhaps the most logical explanation for the practice of stopping a clock when a person died was simply to record the time of death. This probably applied to people whose homes were a little more distant, where it would take a while for the coroner to go pick up the body. But aside from covering the mirrors and stopping the clocks, during the Victorian era, they practiced something called post-mortem photography. It's exactly what that sounds like. People would take pictures with their deceased loved ones. So the setting typically reflected something that this person did or enjoyed doing during their life. And the children and the rest of the family members would gather around and they would take the picture. If they were children, then normally they would surround them with their toys. And sometimes they would position them sitting down, but they also had these clamps that they used to kind of help them stand. And in some cases, they would paint their eyelids open to make it seem more realistic. Taking a picture with your deceased loved one might seem strange, but we have to remember that photography back then was very expensive. And so, sadly... Most of the time, this was the only picture that they ever had of their loved one. And to help families with the process of grieving the loss of a child, they had something called mourning or grave dolls. Now, these dolls were made out of wax and they were filled with sand to give it that lifelike weight. And they would dress these dolls in the child's clothing. Sometimes they would even make them with the child's hair. And they would place these dolls in their own miniature coffins at the child's gravesite. But some families would decide to keep them in their homes and display them. And that's how they grieved. Now, have you ever been to a funeral? And have you ever been offered cookies? These are known as funeral cookies or funeral biscuits, and or corpse cakes. Well, during the Victorian era, they would often hand out these cookies to the guests who attended the funeral, and or to family members who, for some reason, couldn't attend the funeral. And they would stamp it with either the family crest, or some religious iconography, like the cross, and or a phrase from scripture. But it is rumored that these cookies contained a little bit of the deceased loved one's remains. Some believe that they would scrape off some of the dead cells, <laughs> no pun intended, into the batter and bake those cookies and then hand them out. And the reason it's believed that they would do that 
is because it was an effort to, one, honor, and two, incorporate the essence of that loved one into your own. Whether or not they truly did that, I can't say. But I do know where this belief comes from. It comes from the Middle Ages in Germany, for instance. They had what they called corpse cakes, and it was with the intention to symbolically mirror the act of eating the deceased. And it was for that same reason, to honor and incorporate their essence into your own. And so what they would do was, after the body had been washed and laid in its coffin, the woman of the house would prepare the leaven dough and place it to rise on the linen-covered chest of the corpse. And it was believed that the dough would absorb some of the deceased personal qualities that were in turn passed down onto the mourners who ate the corpse cakes. And even Hungary had similar traditions because they would place all sorts of foods and drinks close to the corpse for about an hour to absorb those qualities of the deceased, and then they would consume it. Now let's jump forward in time to present day in Mexico. Mexico has a different perspective when it comes to death. They don't shield themselves from it. In fact, they keep it very close. They joke about it. They celebrate it. They grow up with it. Children aren't typically afraid of skeleton figures. It's very natural to them. I mean, some families, for the Days of the Dead, tell and teach their children not to touch anything on the altars. Otherwise, if the children eat candies or food from the altars, the dead might come back to haunt them. And what some families are known to do is if they catch the child eating from the altar, at night, when the child is asleep, they will tie their feet together. And so when the child wakes up in the morning, they will know that the dead paid them a visit. But there is one tradition in Mexico that is slowly dying out. And that is the cleansing of bones. In Campeche, Mexico, in the town of Pomuch, they practice the ritual of bone cleansing. I do have to say that Cleaning the dead is a rare Dia de los Muertos tradition, and the village of Bomuch is one of the few places that still does it. It is done because it is a way to care for the relatives in the afterlife. The origin of bone cleaning is unknown, but many speculate that it comes from the indigenous culture all the way to Aztec mythology to where Mictlan Siwatl, or Mictacasiwatl, both being the same deity, the goddess of the Aztec underworld, would care for the bones of the dead. And so every year, beginning in the month of October, hundreds of people request and pay some of the workers in that cemetery to take out their relatives and clean their bones, all in preparation for the days of the dead. Families have to wait at least three years after the death to open the tombs, and it's also against tradition to do the first cleaning 
it is customary for families to bring in a clean sheet every year to place the bones after they've been cleansed. And most of the times, these sheets have designs that have been embroidered on. In fact, the embroidery is encouraged because it's a telling sign that these family members are honored and very much respected. And so these bones, along with this new clean sheet, are placed in a box and are placed on display during the Days of the Dead. And so the living family members can go have a meal with them, can go talk to them, basically interact with them. But Mexico isn't the only culture that interacts with their loved one's bones. Japan has their own tradition, known as kotsuage. And it's also important to keep in mind that in Japan, people are also very accepting and open about death. Their ancestors are seen as protectors of the family. And this ritual that they do is simply another one to bring families together, especially after the loss of a loved one. So, this ritual consists of the family witnessing their deceased loved one being put into the crematorium chamber. And this is usually the time where they say their last goodbyes. They later return after the remains have cooled down, and with these large chopsticks, is what they called them, which, by the way, are made using different woods to symbolize the separation between this world and the world of the dead. It symbolizes the coming together of these two worlds for this sacred practice. The family then picks up the remains, which are the larger bones, starting at the feet and moving upwards. The ashes and bones are then placed into urns, and once the process is complete, the urn stays with the family's shrine from 30 to 50 days, in which afterwards, it's then taken to a graveyard. And I don't know about you guys, but learning about different cultures and their traditions and the meaning behind what they do and why they do these things has always fascinated me. And so I want to thank you guys for sticking around and listening to this episode in which many people might find morbid, but I consider it educational and mind-expanding. And so if you know about any other rare or quote-unquote strange funeral traditions that you may have heard of, feel free to reach out to me. Of course, likewise, if you have any questions or if there's something that you just simply want to add, you can reach me at lauralavender.mb at gmail.com. Of course, you're also welcome to friend me on Instagram at lauralavender.mb and or on TikTok, same handle, lauralavender.mb. And don't forget to check out the website at www.mysteriesbeyond.com. If you scroll down on the homepage, you'll find the speak pipe button. Don't be afraid to use it. Leave me a quick voice message with your thoughts about the show, and I'll post them on a future episode. Also, before I forget, I want to give a quick shout out to Onyx underscore Diablo, who left me an amazing review at Apple Podcast. And I just want to say thank you very much. I completely appreciate it. 
because as you know, it helps the podcast get more exposure and it helps with the bringing together of like-minded individuals. So thank you guys so much for listening to Mysteries Beyond. I'm your host, Laurel Lavender, and I'll see you guys next episode.